welcome to the ED Jam. ago um, I was having a pretty average Tuesday and uh, the kids were at daycare which is always a win. Um, I had the house to myself, I was chilling out and I was folding some washing. Um, so I was headed back from one of the kids rooms just um, putting some stacks of washing into the drawers and I had this sudden onset of a left hand numbness. Um, both my legs felt really weak and I just felt super strange in my brain. Like you're on the ball, man. You're fast, you're quick. You know, you, you make decisions pretty quickly and you felt yeah. off. Yeah, everything normally yeah comes to me quickly. I like to speak quickly. I like things happening promptly. And, and this was sort of like I was stuck in this foggy zone that I couldn't get out of. Mm -hmm. And so I was on shift and I had a missed call and a message from the neurology um, office. And so I what finished the job. Say? What did it say? It said, hi, this is the receptionist from, you know, the neurology office. Um, could you give us a call as soon as you get the chance? <laughs> and what were you thinking when you got that message? Um, well, thankfully I was at work so I could focus on what was happening there for a little bit, but I thought, okay, okay they've found something. We're terrible patients because we're so used to being on the other side. Um, we're so used to calling the shots, to being in control, just to being that one on the other side of that relationship and I guess that feeling of suddenly being a patient I just don't like the way that feels what up legends it's Benny here welcome to the EDGM podcast this week I'm chatting to Sal um, and Sally's an intensive care paramedic and we're talking about her story going from a clinician to a patient. Um, it's a really awesome story. Sally's gonna unpack um, what she went through in the last four months, and also a little bit about her um, as a clinician and what it's like crossing over to being a patient. Um, I think you're gonna love it. There's some really awesome points that Sally raises, especially as a clinician. We can learn so much when other clinicians go through things as well, um, because we can also imagine ourselves being in that position as well. Um, so listen up to the podcast. I hope you're going to like it. Um, we're getting close to the end of the year. I love everybody who's listened. Um, recently, there were some Spotify reviews, and I loved all the feedback I got from that. So thank you to everyone who listens. You can listen to me um, on any streaming service, and you can follow me on Instagram at EDGM Podcast. Um, so yeah, have a listen. Uh, let's crack into the episode. You. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for you to yell. <laughs> left you hanging. You left me hanging, bro. Now you're cool, you're cool. Um, you welcome to the podcast. Um, yes, I'm stoked, and you can hear Sal stoked as well. Um, we are awesome as usual, but I'm chatting to um Sal, um Sally, who is an intensive care paramedic. Um, Sal, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm nervous. I'd probably be more comfortable uh, running a cardiac arrest than chatting about myself, but here we are. <laughs> I've got you. I've conned you in. I've, I've drawn you in. That's it. Taking a while, and I've I've seen you run a fair few, um, you know, big sort of um, resources, and dude, you are definitely um, pretty cool in the zone, mate. 
Um, unlike me, I'm a flapper, but anyway. Um, to be an intensive care paramedic, what have you got to do? Um, so you start your journey like everyone else as a probationer, um, then you qualify as a paramedic, and then you have to apply to do um, extra training on top of that. So it's time in ambulance school, doing um, learning, training, assessment scenarios. Then you head into theatres and do some placements there with intubations. And then you do a really long um, placement um, being guided by a mentor on road. And once they've signed you off, um, then you're out as an intensive care paramedic. Sweet. Sounds pretty cool. You get some time in theatres just for some intubations and some LMAs and that sort of stuff. Yeah, so um, all paramedics are, are good at managing airways, but the intensive care guys um, just have a bit of extra training and we're able to intubate um, out on the road. So it's best that we get that skill down before we take it out on the road. And so having a placement in theatres um, was good to learn intubation, but also I learned a lot of um, good skills with airway management too. That's so good. And I was speaking to one of the guys who's actually just finished his training and he was um, hanging with one of my other friends who's an anaesthetist and said it was awesome. He got to do so much stuff. Uh, and by the end of it, he goes, I was actually loving it. I'd love to just go in one day a week and do some tubes. Yeah, it's um, it's a very different environment to what we're used to. I felt like a fish out of water because it's so controlled. It's clean. It's well lit. It's quiet. And that's exactly opposite to what we're used to out on the road. So it took me quite a while to settle into that environment. But learned a lot up there so very grateful for my time up there 100 i mean ed and paramedics are kind of like the dirty medicine hey <laughs> very much so yeah <laughs> we can handle dirt <laughs> yeah we like it dirty yeah <laughs> I do I? Like, I, can't, I mean i like a clean resource bay at the end of it but i do like seeing it messy it means it was used that's it that's it <laughs> um and so um, as an intensive care paramedic, you also are responsible for training other intensive care paramedics or they you mentor people as well? Yes. Yep. So we do the training for them. So it's one-on-one. -on -one. We have 14 weeks where we're rostered with the same person. And I've just completed one of those stints uh, with a trainee. And you spend every day shift, every night shift, the whole time together, um, signing them off on all of their skills and overseeing all of their work and that's also incredibly rewarding and you learn a lot yourself as a clinician um, sort of relinquishing that control and supporting someone else to um, take hold of that sort of new role as an ICP yeah that'd be hard too because you know being like yourself being quite gifted in that field there's times where you just want to jump in and, and show them how to do it but you've got to kind of take a step back and go hang on a minute yeah, I learned, I learned that I just needed to wait a few more beats and yeah. the trainee would be there in, in a moment, but it's just having that patience and that sort of confidence to just let it sit for a few more seconds um, and you can see them learning so much more out of having that experience themselves rather than me swooping in and doing it because that's the way I've always done it for, you know, the last seven years as an ICP. And I also learned, like I received a huge amount of respect for my training officer who, I mean, I had a lot of respect for him at the time, but now doing it myself, I realised how much like restraint he had um, and confidence in me to, you know, let me do, you know, my job in a learning stage, whereas I knew that he was very senior and could do it, you know, with his eyes closed. So, yeah, it's been very rewarding to see all those perspectives. Yeah, and my dad was in the job. Oh. Uh, 
Yeah, so I was probably exposed to paramedicine from a very young age. And I do recall as a child swearing black and blue that I would never do that job, that it was gross and disgusting and because I'd heard all the stories over the dinner table. (laughs) And um, I thought, I guess I thought I didn't want to do what he'd already done. I wanted to sort of carve my own path. But Mm. when I really got into assessing what I wanted to do for a a career, um, it boiled down to the medical field and then paramedicine just stood out for me um just had everything I wanted the changing scenery um the autonomy um being with patients for that really acute but short sort of space of time where you can make a big difference I just yeah haven't looked back now four months ago something happened um that has definitely changed your life in in definitely the way you think about life and and a few things um what happened Sal four months ago yeah so four months ago um I was having a pretty average Tuesday and I had this sudden onset of a left hand numbness. Um, Both my legs felt really weak and I just felt super strange in my brain. I guess the only way I could describe it is uh, like a neurological impending sense of doom. Like I sort of felt like I was on the edge of something very bad happening. Like I might lose consciousness or have a seizure And so thankfully, uh, my husband was working from home at the time. So I called out to him. I think I was screaming as loud as I could, but I wasn't really sure if I was screaming as loud as I thought I was. Mm -hmm. Um, And he came out um, of the office to find me sort of crouching at the kitchen bench. He says I was sort of half squatting. And I remember at the time just thinking I wanted to lie myself down. It was just a sort of instinct that, I felt so unsteady on my feet, so out of control. But for some reason, I couldn't coordinate the sitting down part. So I was just hanging on to the bench with my right hand, which was still strong, and I'm just waiting for him to come out. So he came out and I asked him to lie me down on the ground. And my first instinct was to ask him to call my best friend, Stace, who lives just up the road from me. So she's less than a kilometre away, and I knew she also had the day off. So he called her straight away. She came over. And by the time she came over, um, I was feeling a little bit better and the numbness in my left hand was um, resolving. It felt still a little bit sort of tingly and weird. And the biggest difference was I just felt um, incredibly vague. Like I understood what was going on and I was understanding people talking to me, but I was just having a bit of trouble being on the ball I guess and my usual self yeah. and um, sorry so I just interrupt you're normally pretty like you're on the ball man you're fast you're quick you know you, you make decisions pretty quickly and you felt yeah. off yeah everything normally yeah comes to me quickly I like to speak quickly I like things happening promptly and and this was sort of like I was stuck in this foggy zone that I couldn't get out of um yeah, so Stace sort of ran through a bit of an assessment just with what she had there, which was just herself. Um, and I didn't have any deficits at that point, And I felt um, kind of okay within myself. Um, and so she called one of our friends who's also a manager. He was on duty. So he popped in and did a set of OBS and they were unremarkable. Um, but I started to develop a bit of a, a headache, just a very mild um, sort of temporal headache like maybe a three out of 10. And to me, that kind of made sense that it was just a response from the stress of the event. Um, The headache itself didn't really bother me. 
Um, but I did feel like whatever had happened um, a few minutes prior had been incredibly significant. It just felt um, so strange and unlike anything I've felt before. Um, so, of course, uh, my friends were very keen to get me up to ED uh, to be assessed. And I was very keen not to go. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about that, Sal? Like, you know, reluct- reluctance to be a patient? We, we're terrible patients because we're so used to being on the other side. Um, I guess for me, it's a vulnerability thing. You know, suddenly you're not in control of your body, of what's happening to you and all those sorts of things. And it, it's scary. Yeah. But you also were pretty adamant about getting people you trusted to examine you. Yeah. 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 Um, and and they they know me very well. They could tell that I was incredibly unsettled by what had happened and they know that I'm not one to sort of make a fuss about anything so even to call them to come over um, had them quite worried at that point yeah I was really interested and intrigued when Sal said that she got her two colleagues to come around um, and to assess her Um, it made me realize just the strong community that paramedics have with each other Um, I think sometimes when you work in a job where you're you know you see so much trauma you see so many bad things and you see some good things but you know you're forced to get really really close and often the people you work with can almost be your best friends more than colleagues Um, and paramedics have that really strong sense of community with each other Um, they become really really close friends i also really love the vulnerability that sal was saying that you know as clinicians we're often on the other side of the bed and it's so vulnerable when you're sitting in that gown in a bed space being examined by people that you work with um, or that you've spent years and years practicing with um, it just it's such an unsettling process um, we're so often in that control seat the hot seat the one who gives the drugs the one who hits the defib the one who starts compressions the one who puts in the airway and then suddenly we're the person who the, all that's being done to uh, i think it makes you realize um, just how vulnerable patients are when they're in our hands And, and Sal, just, just medically, um, background medical problems, do you, know, do you take regular medications? Do you, have you had any previous surgeries? No, so um, a completely clear medical history up until that point. Um, no regular meds, no allergies. Um, I had had my wisdom teeth out as a, in my early 20s, I think. Um, but other than that, like your average healthy person. With your consultation of your mates, you make a decision to head up to uh, an emergency department. Yeah, so they pull the, if this was a patient of yours, would you recommend they go to ED? (laughs) Yes. And I said, yeah, okay, you have a point. Um, All right, I'll go, um, but I'll just be driven up there. I'm not going in an ambulance. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, So I got driven up there and refused to go in through the ambulance entry. I wanted to go through the main waiting room. Had you seen people that you'd known when you were sitting in that waiting room? Um, so a couple of the nursing staff were familiar to me. I've been to that ED quite a bit um, as a paramedic. And, yeah. I mean, everyone was super professional. I didn't feel uncomfortable because I was in an ED that I was familiar with. Um, but just that thought of being on the other side, again, is what just make, made me so kind of scared of what was going on, I guess. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, so, yeah, I got 
triaged, um, popped back in the waiting room to wait to see the doctor. Um, I got uh, examined a neuro assessment. Um, so, you know, all the funny touch the nose, touch the finger, rub the heel on the chin type things. Um, and I could manage all of those very well. So I had no deficits. Um, I was answering all the questions with ease, but it was taking a lot of concentration to do it. And my only symptom at that stage was this mild headache and the fact that I felt so off, which is a really hard symptom to explain, I guess, mm. because people don't know your normal level of functioning and what you mean by vague or fuzzy, you know, those type of things. You can't see it. You can't measure it. It's just I'm reporting it. And that's my experience at the time. Yeah. So um, what happened after that, Sal? They examined you neurologically and you examined well. Yeah, so all my OBS were unremarkable. The only finding was that my pupils were one size different, which to me I wasn't aware of that being a, a prior thing. Yeah. Um, so everything looked good. They did some bloods. Um, then they decided to treat me under a migraine pathway. Um, so I'd had a couple of my, well, what I would describe as migraines in the past. I hadn't seen a doctor. Again, we're terrible patients. Um, <laughs> hadn't seen a doctor for those but I had assumed it was a migraine based on the presentation of you know severe headaches vomiting those sorts of things I'd only had a couple and none in the recent years at all um I just experienced some like ocular migraines um sort of visual symptoms that passed um very quickly and so they said um they'd treat under a migraine pathway they um mentioned a doing a CT which my friend um who's the manager sort of pushed for that. And I was grateful for that at the time, just because I felt like I was not able to advocate for myself like I usually would. Yeah. In um, what way? Well, normally I'm quite health literate. I can advocate for myself. I have a strong voice when I need to, um, but I felt so altered. I just didn't feel in a position to be making decisions for myself, I guess, or to be sort of advocating for myself, I guess, just being my own advocate. Um, so, yeah, he sort of said, yep, do the CT. Um, we might as well. We're here. Let's just tick it off. Yeah. And that came back. They didn't find any abnormalities with that. Okay. Were you reluctant to get a CT for radiation purposes or just you were just reluctant to get, you just weren't sure? Well, they were kind of offering it to me like they could do it, but it wasn't indicated okay. um, because I had no strong history of any sort of stroke um, sort of criteria, I guess. Um, so, yeah, clear medical record and healthy weight and all those sorts of things just didn't lend themselves to me being the prime candidate um, for anything. So, yeah, I received um, some fluids, some Lugactyl, some Maxilon. Um, I'd taken my own Panadol for the mild headache, which resolved um, in a couple of hours, and I was um, discharged from ED um, later that night. Yeah. Okay. Um, and you, you gave me some notes I had a quick read of and you said that you didn't feel safe to drive or to be alone or look after your kids. Um, is that right? Yeah. So yeah. when I left the ED, um, I still felt just as vague as when I'd arrived. That hadn't changed at all. Um, and I, I was sort of just sitting in this world of my own and able to really think about what was different. And the only way I can describe it is I could hear what everyone was saying and I could hear noises but they were a very long way away from being processed in my brain so that it was just like a gap between 
any auditory input and my brain being able to make sense of it and then sort of work out what I needed to do or say next. Mm. Um, and that started from even registering at the hospital, like them asking for my Medicare card, just having to pause and think, what did they just say? Oh, Medicare card. Oh, that's right. I need to get it out of my wallet. You know, those little things that normally are so instant, you don't even have to think about what you do next, just seem to take a long time. And it was just hazy. Everything felt very hazy, I guess. Mm -hmm. So yeah, when I got home, um, the next day was just your average day. I had the kids at home. I did not feel uh, capable of being alone with them in case something happened because I still felt so altered. It felt like I was on the edge of something bad happening still. Yeah. And I definitely freaked my husband out and he did not <laughs> trust me to go anywhere alone either. So he was constantly checking. I had my Apple watch on and my phone on and I went to the park behind our house, you know, for five minutes and he'd come and check that everything was okay because he could see in me that I didn't feel capable and he'd obviously seen me the day before have this sort of event. So yeah, it was it was just a rough couple of days after that, just wondering what had happened, not really having any answers because nothing the hospital had done had resolved that vague feeling. Um, and just sort of wondering, I guess, what, what the next few days were gonna look like and whether this was the new normal or why on earth I was feeling so altered. Mm. And you got two young kids, Sal, too? Yeah, two. So two boys, they're four and two. Yeah, so it's a big responsibility when you don't, when you don't, like when you feel good, that's still a big responsibility. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let alone, yeah. Let alone when you feel off or something's not right. Yeah. I mean, how did you feel knowing, you know, you've been given an, you know, a discharge summary that's saying, you know, everything's normal, but you feel off. What did you do then, Sal? it sort of plays with your mind, I guess. Like I normally have a really good relationship with my body and what's happening in it. And I feel quite in tune with it. And I was, you know, convinced at the time something very bad was happening. So then to have everything sort of no abnormalities, you feel, you start to question, like, am I making this up? Am I just freaked out by what happened and feeling vague as a result of that? Um, but the, the lingering vagueness just drove me to go and see my GP um, because it hadn't resolved. I didn't have answers. I just felt like I needed some further investigation. So I went to my GP who was positively shocked to have received my um, ED discharge summary because she knows me and knows that it takes a lot, you know, to get me up to the ED. I've never been in my life, um, only as a paramedic. So she did an assessment. Everything was also normal um, from her assessment, but she trusted you know, her gut that I was concerned and she phoned up to get me a appointment with a neurologist and managed to get me in the next day um, due to a cancellation. So that's wow. pretty, yeah. That's pretty hard to get into as well. I know, right? Very lucky. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to get into. Um, but it's so important. Hey, even a point on that is just to have a good GP that knows you well. Um, mm. like, hard to find at the moment, but it's so important to have someone that you trust and that knows you and that you trust with your medical information as well yeah yeah, yeah. so so you go your appointments the next day yep um, did you still work does like you've gone to work or yeah so oh, wow. i pushed on with work it's like oh i've got you know two thousand days sick leave but you know i still got to work I, I guess in a way i wanted 
to test myself because yep. to me work comes so naturally it's so inbuilt into who I am yep. that I thought this is my, my career I need to go back and just see if I can still manage that um, obviously I could still I knew all my drug doses I knew all my protocols and procedures I was having no difficulty recalling any of that that was all still there um, I was still steady and strong all of that was still there so I did just want to go and see whether I could you know push through and yeah, yeah got through the shift fine um but just had that sort of lingering vagueness yeah okay. and you've gone to work you actually did a night shift if yep. um yep. says correct uh and then you've gone uh and then um you've gone to see the um neurologist yeah so i'm post night shift post night shift at the neurologist um that's what, I, that's what i sound like when i'm at night shifts mate yeah. the work makes <laughs> that's it um yeah so then i get there and i i'm starting to feel a bit like an imposter you know you look around the waiting room and you think oh all of these people probably have legitimate problems to see the neurologist and here i am um 32 years old healthy i've had this event that's resolved you know i went to ed there were no abnormalities there and I'm just now feeling vague, you know, that's going to sound weird to the neurologist, but he was great. He um, did a really thorough assessment, took a really good history, and he sort of felt straight out that he was confident it wasn't a migraine, um, which is one of his specialty areas, um, just coincidentally. Um, so he sort of said, okay, I, it's not sounding like anything typical or anything that he could think of. And at that point, I just thought, no, I need to I need to really advocate for myself here. And I just impressed upon him how altered I felt. And I just wanted to give him a sense that it it was really upsetting to me how different I was and that that wasn't normal and that I sort of I wasn't going to stop until I got an answer, I guess, of why. Mm. So pretty, you're pretty persistent. So. Yeah, I sort of I just, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I was. Through persuasion, what did you have a chat with the neurologist about? Well, so at work, I'm very happy to advocate for my patients. I've, I'm quite confident at work, but I probably should just say, like, take me out of my uniform and out of that comfort zone. And in my everyday life, I'm not overly outgoing. Mm. Um, I sort of have to work myself up to make phone calls and I don't like meeting new people or going to new places. Um, so for me to sort of speak up for myself is a big deal in a personal sense, I guess. Um, I just, yeah, I guess I got, I'm shy. I guess if you put me in a doctor's office where they're wearing the suit, getting paid the big bucks, and I'm there just saying I feel a bit vague, um, I just sort of really feel that power dynamic, I guess. Mm. So is it like when you're a paramedic that, I don't know, the uniform gives you the confidence or gives you the ability to have that i don't know like it's interesting you know yeah, it is. I, I think about this um a lot and what it what the combination is i guess uh, in my workplace uh, it's a very familiar environment even though our scenes are all different um our we know all the answers you know you can't really put a problem in front of us that we don't have some sort of solution to or some protocol or some medication that we can apply that will make the situation better and that gives me that sense of control that I can take something bad and make it better. Whereas put me on the patient side and I'm 
powerless. You know, I've, I haven't got the answers. I haven't got the specialties. I haven't got the tests. I haven't got the knowledge that can give me the answers to what's going on. Mm, that's really interesting. Mm. Uh, yeah, that is actually interesting. Hey, like, you know, in and out of the uniform, you can, you can sort of almost not be two different people, but operate in two different ways. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, so Sal, you, um, you know, you're chatting with your neurologist, you're in his office. Um, and then what happens then? So he says, look, let's do some tests. I can see that, you know, you're not happy with the way you're feeling. You think something significant's gone on. So let's, let's do them. So we'll do, he ordered a EEG and he ordered, um, two MRIs, one of the brain and one of the spine, uh, with contrast. So I had to go and get them all booked in um, and they happened a couple of weeks later. Okay. And EEG just to look for seizures and MRI just to look for any abnormalities to the brain? Yeah, so I guess he was thinking, uh, yeah, some seizure-type activity. Um, MS was probably on the list or maybe even some sort of um, space-occupying lesion. Um, yeah, so he was sort of covering a lot of bases and just kind of hoping something or maybe nothing would come back. And he did say at the end of the appointment, look, um, go and get all those tests done that I've referred you to. And when the results come back, I'm expecting them to be clear and I'll just give you a phone call to let you know that they're all okay. And then run me through what's happened then, Sal. You get a, um, you've had an MRI. How long did you wait for that? Sorry. A couple of weeks, yeah. So I had two over consecutive days because they're long. They split them over a couple of appointments. Um, So my second one was done, I believe it was a Thursday evening quite late in the day. And then I went home, went to work the next day. It makes me sound like I'm at work every day. That's not <laughs> Four on five off, baby. Come on. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. Um, and so I was on shift and I had a missed call and a message from the neurology um, office. And so I finished the job. Saying? What did it say? It said, hi, this is the receptionist from, you know, the neurology office. Um, could you give us a call as soon as you get the chance? <laughs> And what were you thinking when you got that message? Um, well, thankfully, I was at work, so I could focus on what was happening there for a little bit. But I thought, okay, they've found something. So called them back and um, she said, yeah, the doctor would like to see you. Are you able to come in? This is around 10 a.m. in the morning. She said, are you able to come in now or in your lunch break? And I said, I don't get a lunch break. It's not really how my job works. And she said, no worries. Can you come in just after five when you finish? I said, oh, also not really how my job works. Yeah. I don't finish at five. So then it um, went into the, the weekend and Monday I had both the kids. So I said, oh, I can't come in on Monday. Like I'm minding yeah. my kids. Uh, so then I went in on the Tuesday after a night shift again. Right. <laughs> Well, I couldn't take in information after a day shift, let alone a night shift. I know, right? That's a whole new level of um, yeah, processing oh, issues. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you must be stressed waiting, like anyone waiting, like it just, my heart goes out to people that are waiting for results. Like your mind goes crazy. It does. It does. And you go through every option. You go through all the tangents and worst case and how that's going to play out. And then if you've got family and friends also knowing, then they've got their own opinions on it and their own fears. And, yeah, it was a a long three days just sort of wondering, I guess. Um, Partly, uh, I guess, happy is a strange word, but happy that I was going to get some answers, um, but also very um, apprehensive about what those answers were going to be. 
So he opens up the report and just sort of reads out the summary section and it just says there's evidence of an area of cerebral infarct in the right temporal region and another smaller area of infarct in another area. Uh, and he, so he just summarises that for me in layman's terms and says, so you've had a stroke. Wow. Mm. <laughs> and I guess I was, I was shocked because uh, maybe stroke what hadn't been top of my list of what I thought it was because it had resolved and, you know, I didn't have a few of the classic strokey symptoms that you think of. But my, um, my biggest emotion was relief and maybe it was the post-night shift factor, but I think I almost laughed when he told me and it was like a I told you so kind of feeling like I was instantly validated. Like I hadn't made up the vagueness in my head. I hadn't been causing a fuss going to the ED or following up with my GP or booking a neurologist appointment that it hadn't been an overreaction. If anything, maybe it was an underreaction. Um, and I kind of felt relieved now that I had a name for it and an answer to what had happened to me. Um, when you when you're sitting there and someone gives you a diagnosis, uh, obviously in yours you're saying you felt uh, a sense of almost validation. Um, did you like get out of there and make phone calls, or did you sort of want to ask more questions, or um, did he sort of launch? Did, did he you know jump into action and start doing things like you know frantically or anything? So I reckon he was even more shocked than I was, to be okay. honest. Um, he hadn't expected it. As he'd said in the appointment before, like when it comes back clear, I'll give you a phone call to let you know. So he was equally as shocked, if not more so, because, you know, even in his, I don't know how many years of experience, he'd said it doesn't fit into any sort of classic presentation. So even he was taken aback that he'd now seen, you know, this different presentation in an incredibly healthy young person that he doesn't normally get through the door of his office so he launched into action um which I almost found comical maybe also because of the night shift thing but he's saying quick we've got to get you on aspirin go straight to the chemist and get the aspirin and then you've got to go and have carotid ultrasounds and I'll call my friend and he can squeeze you in you've got to walk there right now can you go to that hospital right now and get it done um I'm going to call my other cardiology friend and get you in oh he's scrubbed in okay tell him as soon as he gets out of there he needs to call me and I'm thinking whoa 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 the strokes already happened mate like but yeah, it was nice now that he sort of had some momentum to getting to the bottom of why I'd had a stroke. And at the time, I didn't really have many questions for him. Yeah. And again, that's just that it, it's a personal thing. Like I'm not there as a clinician where I think clearly. I'm there as a patient where I'm I'm got to process that information I've been given. I've got to mull over it. And in the coming days, yeah, I had hundreds of questions for him but it's too late by then you know you've done that appointment and I was just so focused on what I needed to do next okay I need to go to the chemist to get the aspirin I need to go and have the carotid ultrasound I need to go and book in the cardiology appointment and I probably need to call my husband and tell him I've had a stroke <laughs> did you call your husband or did you see him in person when you said you had a stroke so I called him um, yeah. so he was at work um, and I was just coming out of the appointment and yeah I think as a paramedic we've probably got that sick sense of humor where we find unfunny things funny yeah. <laughs> yeah. to me as I told 
Um, so I told my best friend Stace who'd been there when it happened and I told my husband and I I was just, I was laughing. I guess I told my family I was laughing. They weren't laughing. They didn't know how to take me. They didn't know if I was joking about whether I'd had a stroke or not. Um, but that's just how I processed it. I kind of, it was disbelief. And to me, that was the funny part, I guess. It's um, just, Crazy. we're odd. <laughs> we're an odd oh, man. And in your case, you were sort of mentioned that um, there was sort of two sections of stroke. Um, you know, it explains, you're saying sort of it explains some of the numbers and vagueness. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So obviously it's on the right side and uh, they say it's in an area which I think um, has some input into auditory processing, which makes sense to why sounds and voices and things sounded like distant from my brain. Um, and certainly it explains the left-handed numbness and the sort of vagueness they've put down to, yeah, the uh, ischemic or infarcted areas um, of my brain. Okay. And obviously your head's or I mean, at the moment you're telling people that you've just, you've had a stroke, which is saying you don't really want to do when you're 32. Um, <laughs> but the um, neurologist has sort of jumped into some cardio mates um, yeah. and saying that, you know, they're trying to work out what's actually caused your stroke, yeah. um, what did he mention some of the causes could be? So he sort of said um, top two were AF, atrial fibrillation, and the second one was a PFO, a patent foramen ovale, so like a cardiac defect. And he sort of just said he was a neurologist, but he sort of said they're the top two we're looking for in cardiology land. So at that point he just referred me over and I started the cardiology journey from there. Okay. Yep. So I have um, an ECG done. I have a 30-day event cardiac monitor put on. I have a 24-hour halter monitor done. I got a transthoracic echo, and I was scheduled for a transesophageal echo as well. The biggest one that got me was the transesophageal echo because, again, just sitting in that office being told it needs to happen, you say, yep, yep, yep. You write it all down so you don't forget, and then you do the classic. I went home and I Googled and went, oh, right, I have to be sedated to have that. Like, that's a day <laughs> thing. Like, that's not just like a lie down and run the ultrasound probe over you. Like, to me, that was a bigger deal. And my last sort of experience of having any sort of sedation was having my wisdom teeth out. And I don't have fond memories of coming out from under that. So I guess there was fear attached to whether the sedation involved in that would be a similar experience. Mm. Um, but it turned out to be, um, I don't know if you can say good, but like a really nice experience um lovely staff and i have out of the whole experience there was an the anesthetist on that day uh got me a warm blanket mm. uh, right before i went under and it was just so lovely and meant so much to me and i know it sounds silly it's just a warm blanket but she sort of said are you cold and i just didn't want to cause a fuss i said oh no no i'm okay and she said one of the nurses over to get a warm blanket she took time to take off the one I had on put the warm one against my skin and that was right before I went under and I just think that you know made a world of difference and it would, took a you know two minutes to sort for me so yeah that sort of stuff's just I mean it's an it, it's hard to teach people that stuff isn't it you know to teach people to have that human factor mm. um to know and, those things you know yeah and then and as a clinician, you don't want to think like the patient. You want to think like the clinician because that's what you're there to do and that's what's important. But if you stop 
for a second, you think, well, I wouldn't want to be lying on that bed under the air conditioner about to go under feeling cold, or I wouldn't want to be sitting there with a full bladder with no staff to let me know it's okay to get up and go to the bathroom. Um, And it is those really little things that throughout the whole journey just were the things that made a big difference to my sort of experience. So um, the interventional cardiologist, I think he was, came out um, afterwards and saw me and said, yeah, you've got a massive patent foramen ovale with an atrial septal aneurysm. I, I nodded and smiled and went, mm-hmm, and then just typed it into my phone to, you know, Google <laughs> later. Um, because I'm I'm a I'm medical, I'm a paramedic, but I have no specialties in cardiology. Yeah. You know, I, I do cardiac arrests, we do, you know, STEMIs, we do those sorts of things. But when it gets to these sort of less common ones that sort of don't present as an, a pre-hospital issue, I've got no idea. I'm just like the next person. Well, wow, it's it's and so for people out there, um, you've done some reading. What is a um, you know, a patent from an avali? But my understanding is that the PFO um, is a congenital heart abnormality. So the the atria, there's a hole there, and when you're in utero, it's open. And when you're born, it closes over. But in this case, it doesn't close over, which means there's like a passage between your left and your right atria. So blood can flow between the two, which is obviously not your usual pathway. Um, so then it means that um, blood returning from your body can sort of skip heading over to the lungs and being filtered and can shoot straight up to your brain, which is what it did in my case. And, um, yeah, the PFO itself is quite common. 25% of the population have them, but most of the time they're not significant or they don't cause issues. Um, so they're, they can be picked up when people have strokes and they go investigating, which is my exact journey. Um, but yeah, you can manage them with long-term like medication for clotting, or you can go ahead and with a closure device to sort of just fix the problem. But I also had the atrial septal aneurysm. So aneurysm to me as a paramedic has a kind of scary meaning, mm. but basically um, the ASA is a lot less common than the PFO, but it does often happen in combination with the PFO. So it's basically like a bulging, like a weakening in the septum between the atria and that can sort of bulge and it obviously can um, increase the stasis of blood in that sort of bulgy pocket. So I think on mine, there was like an 18 millimetre excursion um, of that (laughs) weakened fragile septum sort of bulging into the other side so the combination of them is i guess what puts me at the higher risk of having a stroke as a result between pfos and migraines as well yeah yeah i don't understand much more than that but i do know that people um, with pfos often suffer migraines and that often once it's closed the um instances of migraines decreases so i'm interested you know in that a little bit i could probably do some more reading on that that's interesting in itself navigating more than one specialty which is always hard and where patients fall through the cracks but you're navigating cardiologists neurologists um interventional radio you know interventional stuff um and they decided that you needed this pfo fixed i sort of worked my way up through the specialists and then back down with them all sort of giving me their opinions on whether or not it needed to be closed um so when i got back to neurology he was like oh well no there's no other cause for it this is it get it closed if it was me I'd be getting it closed right now and that was also what one of the um, cardiologists said to me 
And I sort of thought about the risks. It's fairly low risk. And the way they do it these days, the technology's um, amazing. And so I thought, let's do it, close it. Let's not have another stroke. Uh, it was quite straightforward and it was just under light sedation. So I was awake for the whole procedure. And to me, it felt exactly like watching um, a STEMI getting stented. So okay. it's obviously a PCI procedure. You have the local in the groin, um, at which point he seemed to be putting a lot of local in. And I think I asked him, is the amount of local because of the gauge of what you're putting in or how deep you have to go? Um, and he responded, oh, you know, a bit of both. Um, but it's kind of funny being able to talk with the person that's doing somewhat of an invasive procedure on your heart. But mm. I found it super interesting because um, at my heart, I'm a clinician and I find yeah. that stuff interesting. And I thought through all of this, like I'm learning a lot from this, even though it's not ideal, but, you know, I can take a lot away from this. So, yeah, they put a wire a guide sort of wire up into the heart and as soon as it went in it was like palpitation <laughs> city yeah. I could see it on the monitor I could feel it in my throat just all the ectopics just heart rate going all over the shop but um you know the guy doing it looked incredibly calm so I knew it's very you know expected and then I he talked me through the opening of the closure device so they go through the PFO open one side of it come back through open the other side and sort of clamp them together mm. and then he gives it a big tug to make sure it's nice and secure and as soon as the device sort of went over I had this classic cardiac chest pain it's oh, like no. exactly how the patients describe it oh, I wouldn't say it's a pain it's like a pressure <laughs> <laughs> I gotta laugh with that one <laughs> What are some of the lessons that you've learned out from this whole experience? The first one that comes to mind is just that vulnerability that patients feel and that I felt. It's scary being on the other side and it's a really good experience to have as a clinician to feel how scary it is and how difficult it is to advocate for yourself when you're in that position. Um, it's horrible not being well and not being able to sort of process normally or feeling unwell in some way it makes it really hard to speak up and it just to me indicated that real power imbalance between clinician and patient and how much that affected how I how much I felt I could speak up or you know have a say or ask questions you know you're lying in a bed you're in a gown they're standing over you wearing clothes um, just all of those sort of little factors that we don't give much consideration to um, make a big difference on the patient side. And so I guess as a clinician, little things like if you can sit down next to the patient, like take away that height difference and that sort of power dynamic, um, give them time to think of questions. Um, the other thing that came up for me was that the challenge of navigating the health system. <laughs> I consider myself fairly intelligent. I'm health literate, um, but even I, found it hard knowing what I was supposed to do next, what information I needed, who was in charge of what, how to get the referrals, when to make which appointment. Um, so I guess I've gained a whole new appreciation for if people had English as a second language, if mm. they're from low socioeconomic backgrounds, if they had poor health literacy, the elderly, people with disabilities, 
I just can't imagine the trouble that those people might have navigating that system if I did in sort of my privileged position. Mm. So just, um, you know, just giving them a bit of credit for what they're going for. Like they don't want to be sick. They don't want to have to navigate this ridiculous system. Um, and, you know, they're, 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 they don't want to be there. Just mm. be nice, like give them a break. Um, they're not trying to be a problem. Um, as a patient, I guess I, I took away that I have to write down my questions because I'm just useless in the moment, you know, in that five minute time when the doctor blows in to check if you've got any questions and then blows out. Um, I don't have time to think or the brain space to think then and there. So I really benefited from writing lists in between those appointments of what I wanted to know or what I thought of in between. And I'd refer to those. I felt a bit silly, but it meant I came out of each appointment feeling a lot more in control of what was going on and that I didn't have unanswered questions and doubt about what was happening with my own health. Mm. Um, also, I think I mentioned before, like I'm a paramedic and a lot of people would ask, oh, what do you do for work? And when they find out you're a paramedic, you know, they freak out about having to cannulate you because, you know, <laughs> watching them, then they inev inevitably vomit because they're so freaked out. Um, but I don't, I don't have any specialties in these areas. And I also, I don't have any understanding of the hospital system. You know, once we drop people off in the ED, that's all I see of them. I don't know what happens in the wards or in the day procedure section. Like that's a mystery to me. So I felt like sometimes people shied away from giving me all of the normal patient spiel because they thought, oh, she's a paramedic. She'll, no, I wouldn't want to tell her, but um, yeah, I was like, tell me, tell me all the details, tell me what's expected of me, what I'm supposed to do, because I don't, it's not like inbuilt knowledge for me. Mm. Um, and I guess I learned as a patient personally that I need to be a little bit more open to that sort of help from people and that self-care factor. Because I don't, I don't like using illness as an excuse for not being up to performing at my usual standard. But um, it's okay to slow down. It's okay to ask for help. It's okay to take time out to recover. Um, everyone around you, your friends, family, colleagues that care about you, you know, they, they want to help and they also feel helpless about what's going on. And so, yeah, kind of took away, like take them up on the offers. Like they want to help and it will benefit both of you um, to sort of accept that offer that they're making. Mm. And as a clinician, you've learned some big things i think being on the you mentioned the other side yeah i've upped my game I, I, Wait. You know, yeah i i've been in the job oh, it's just over 11 years now and you can get complacent you know yeah. you can get very good at your job but lose that human side of it i guess sure. so i'm really focusing on you know listening to the patients and really trusting them when they say something didn't feel right or doesn't feel right um you know try not to discount those symptoms that are hard to measure um and just keep them informed on what's happening and never underestimate the importance of that warm blanket mm. you know it makes a big difference believe you have written or you're in the process of writing a book is that correct that is correct yes um it started when i was a ride along i was taking notes down in a little journal like a diary um, and I was so green and so fresh and I was just writing down everything that was happening on every shift because 
I had very little comprehension of what was going on, but I knew that I loved it and I wanted to capture every adrenaline inducing moment. And <laughs> it was a way for me to sort of download all the overwhelm of it and process it and just capture that real essence of like, oh my goodness, this is the best job in the world. Um, so when I reread the journal that I'd done almost a year later when I started as a probationer, it made me realise like just how far I'd come in such a short space of time. I still felt overwhelmed and like things were new, but it wasn't that like complete paralysed feeling of um, not having any idea what's going on. And I just thought, okay, there's some value in jotting down these notes at the time to reflect on and just sort of see that journey that I've made already and knowing you know how I wanted to head to intensive care paramedic I thought yeah there's a journey ahead of me like let's capture all of the stories that sounds awesome I want to read it (laughs) (laughs) so yeah I, I started fleshing out the stories and making them a bit more sort of narrative you know descriptions I wanted to keep them true to the real event I've always wanted to do that Um, but I also sort of added in my own reflections around the events and sort of captured that sense of growth over time and then this was many years ago I I lost about 20,000 words which was all I'd written at the time uh, not backed up (laughs) yeah back in the day you know before the cloud and when a computer died it just took everything with it Um, so the sort of project lay dormant for many years because I just couldn't bring myself to start again from scratch. Nothing could be be, uh, retrieved, uh, which I was just, I had to grieve that for many years. Um, No way. Yeah, devastating. Hey, And I chucked out a lot of my original handwritten notes, so I didn't have a lot to go off anymore. Um, So, yeah, it was heartbreaking. But I got back on the horse uh, a couple of years ago after my second was born. I just um, made it my mission and my hobby to sit down every night after the kids had gone to bed and, you know, type away. And now I've got a manuscript that's about 80,000 words long and I'm just working on probably the fourth draft now of that, just tidying things up and tightening it. And, yeah, it's um it's been really therapeutic, I think, writing all of those things. It helps me process, you know, my response to things, what I've learned from things. Um, it's been very time-consuming. But, um, you know, a steep learning curve, um, not being a writer, um, it's been very interesting. <laughs> and um, I'm really, you know, proud of what I've written. Um, I think it's got a lot of value in sharing that real honest, raw paramedic perspective. Um, I think that's useful probably for uni students because that's where the book starts. You know, I was a ride-along doing my uni degree. Um, I think the current working paramedics will see themselves in it. You know, my stories aren't anything amazing or unique. We've all got those stories, you know, nurses, doctors, paramedics. um, They're all the same stories. They're universal. Um, But I also think, you know, family and friends of, you know, first responders and health workers are also going to enjoy that insight into, you know, what it's like and why we are the way we are, I guess. Have you got a title for the book, Sal, or are you not going to not going to let us know? Oh, yet? I can't leak that information to you, Ben. Right. Okay. Just checking. I like to ask the hard questions. You know? <laughs> get it published and out there. We'll get it published, mate. The um and not far off this book that we can read, and I'll love to read it on the way to work, mate. It'd be awesome. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, if you want to get in contact with Sal, I'll put her um details in the show notes and any information. I'll put out some information on PFOs. 
Um, I'll maybe put out some other information there on strokes because um, I always reckon they're worth a read. Mm. Um, and Sal, anything else you'd like to add? No, I'm just stoked um, that you've had me on, Ben. Thanks so much for the chat. You. I'll send you a mug. <laughs> you. <laughs> I'll stop it. The EDGM podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on the land on which this recording is occurring today, the Darawal people, and pay my respects to the elders past, present, and emerging. But one thing I remember if someone ever says your name is that you have one of the biggest smiles that I've ever seen in my life. Um, and the only thing that's changed is that you wear a mask, but I can still see the smile underneath your mask. <laughs> <laughs>